So tonight I'd like to talk about happiness. I found a, a little um, story in the newspaper recently. It says, an official, an official advisor to the Blair government warned in September that Britain urgently needed 250 special treatment centers staffed by 10,000 therapists to deal with what he called the country's biggest social problem a national epidemic of unhappiness. Probably could apply to our country, too. I think this, uh, the biggest riddle of human existence is this question of happiness. How do we find happiness in this world, this particular world that we've taken birth in, this world that changes all the time and, and includes... Uh, so many joys and so many sorrows. It's not an easy world for most people. Unless you're a pretty rare person, life includes a fair amount of struggle. And it seems like we work hard to be happy, and yet happiness often seems very elusive. We may be able to say that it's one of the most misunderstood things in this world, is how to find happiness. And as I said last night, the Buddha was really interested in this question. This was what he wanted to figure out. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Or you could say suffering and freedom. I think of freedom as an enduring sense of happiness or a durable sense of happiness and peace. The Buddha talked about a lot of different kinds of happiness, during his many years of teaching. He talked about the happiness of metta that you just practiced in this last period and that Chaz is going to talk about tomorrow night. He talked about the happiness of mudita, which is taking pleasure or feeling joy in the happiness of others. He talked about the happiness of renunciation or simplicity, needing little to be content. But there's four other kinds of happiness that he talked about that I want to mention tonight. So one kind of happiness he talked about is the happiness of living an ethical life. And sometimes he called this the bliss of blamelessness. It's that sense that we can feel proud of ourselves and we can feel good about showing our face in public when we live with integrity when we know that um, we have a commitment to live without causing harm to ourselves or others. And the basis of this is the precepts that we took last night, and this is the foundation of Buddhist ethics, this commitment to living with non-harming. And so there's a certain happiness when we acknowledge our connection with others, we acknowledge our interdependence, and um, express that through our care with our actions. I recently did, um, a couple weeks ago, I did a wilderness retreat. I um, camped on a lake in the Adirondacks um, where blissfully there was almost, there was rarely any other people. And um, I would get my water from the lake to, you know, filter and drink and to do the dishes. And I noticed... um, 
fairly on in the re early on in the retreat. Luckily, that when I took the water from a certain place, which seemed like the best place to take it, there were these little tiny minnows in there. And if I hadn't taken care and looked when I looked at the water, I would have cooked them, <laughs> and I would have used them for washing dishes. And um, so I, I started, you know, I started to take really good care every time I took a, a, a thing of water to look in and see if there were minnows. It wasn't so much I was worried about drinking them. I was worried about hurting them and um, making sure that I didn't take any minnows. And there was something that was very beautiful about that for me, that care. I felt connected to the other beings that I was sharing this lake with through that care with the minnows. This could be called the happiness of living uh, with, an, uh, with integrity. So we just feel right when we live in a way that matches what we know is right. We feel good inside. But it's a practice. It's a practice like meditating. You know, we're going to mess up. You know, I, the first few times I took water, I didn't check, and who knows what I did. So um, we have this commitment to live with non-harming, and then we practice and we understand that um, we're not going to always get it perfect. But we do get it closer and closer. We get what we believe and how we act in the world. They become better and better matched, closer and closer to each other. It's also a great way to increase our self-esteem. Because when we act in a way that we can feel proud of, we feel good about ourselves. When we act in a way that um, we're not enslaved by our minds, but yet we're masters of our own actions, we feel good. An example I can give you with me, and I can't even remember if I mentioned this last year, but um, I try not to repeat myself every year. Uh, I am um, a little confession here. I love to drive fast. In fact, when I was in driver's ed, my, driver, my driver's ed teacher called me Leadfoot. Um, there's something fun about driving fast. <laughs> it feels good. And on top of it, I'm impatient. You know, I don't like to be stuck behind people. And I live on this road in the country, and it's six and a half miles down to town, and it's all double yellow lines, no passing zone. And um, you get, sometimes, you know, people have different driving style than I, um, in front of me. And I've really had to work with, like, not tailgating people since I moved there, especially because of this one area. You know, I can find myself getting close to people. And... Um, you know, it should be simple not to tailgate, but those of you who have the same affliction that I do, you know it's not actually so simple. It takes a lot of um, uh, restraint. And so I've noticed that over, you know, the years, as I've, I've managed to actually learn how to, you know, put enough space between me and the other person in front of me, I feel good about myself. You know, I feel good that I, that I don't... Um, let myself be run by my kind of my compulsions, my impatience, my, you know, whatever it is that motivates that. So that's an example of how um, learning to work with our actions can increase our self-esteem. Maybe, you know, you have a difficult time with anger, and when you learn not to express your anger in a way that causes harm, you feel good, Right? Or maybe it's an addiction. You have a certain addiction that you really struggle with. And then as you learn not to be controlled by that addiction, you feel good inside. 
The Buddha considered ethics the foundation of meditation because it leads to a quieter mind, a mind that is happier and easier to meditate. If um, we do things that cause harm, then when we sit down, we find ourselves fretting about it and worrying about it, and the mind doesn't settle down. But if we live with um, integrity, then when we sit down, we feel happy and our minds concentrate more easily. There's a story here. It tells of a monk who, after 24 years, concluded that over all the time he that over all that time he'd made no spiritual progress worth mentioning. 24 years of meditating, he was so depressed and desperate that he decided to end his life. He got a thick rope, climbed up a tree, tied the rope around a sturdy branch, and put the noose around his neck. Just as he was about to jump, it occurred to him that over all those 24 years, he had never broken a single one of the many precepts to which he had bound himself. This knowledge filled him with such a powerful rush of happiness that he at once climbed down the tree and went on with his practice. The feeling of happiness made it possible for him to achieve such a concentrated meditation that after a few years he reached enlightenment. So this happiness of living an ethical life um, also produces good meditation. Another kind of happiness that the Buddha talked about is the happiness of a concentrated mind. And when people think about meditation, this is often actually what they're thinking about. A concentrated mind is a mind that can stay focused, and that's quiet. That's quiet and focused. Annie Lamott says, she's a very funny um, writer, she says, my mind is my main problem most of the time. I think most of us can relate to that because our minds are so busy, right, and out of control. And if we're able to concentrate our mind, we're actually able to um, control it. And you might have tastes of this at times when you're meditating. You may find that there's a period where your mind just quiets down for a while. Maybe it rests with your anchor for a while. And it's really, really nice. In fact, it can be quite blissful. Uh, to have a concentrated mind. So the way that we develop concentration is returning over and over again to an object. When we have a primary object, when we have something that we use in our meditation like that, um, that's to develop concentration. But there is a problem with this kind of happiness. And the problem is that it's really fickle. Concentration comes, concentration goes. It's not dependable. It, you know, if you um, had an argument with somebody before you came in and meditated, mind probably won't be concentrated. If you check your messages on your cell phone, see what happens the next time you come and sit. Your concentration won't be as good. And you can't make the mind be quiet. You've probably tried, right? Doesn't work. Concentration is very fickle. You can't really depend on it. It's wonderful when it happens, but you can't depend on it as a source of happiness. Besides, even if you do make your mind quiet while you're sitting here, what happens when you stand up? You know, when you go out into the world, 
you can't really take concentration with you. Those are two kinds of happiness. Another kind of happiness that the Buddha talked about is the happiness um, of sense pleasures. And this is how we usually think of happiness. So this is the happiness associated with pleasant experiences, fun experiences, pleasurable things. And usually how we think of happiness is if we can get a lot of those and we can eliminate the things that aren't so pleasant, then we'll be happy. And it is true that there is some happiness with pleasant experiences. You know, you look at a beautiful piece of art and you feel happy, or you um, hear good music and feel happy, or you use your body in sports and feel strong and that makes you feel happy. Or you feel the breeze come in the window while you're meditating and it touches your cheek and you feel happy. Meditation helps us actually access this kind of happiness, the happiness of pleasurable experiences, of pleasurable sense experiences, by helping us connect with our senses. As we sit here and we connect with our bodies and our hearing, and as we're walking, we connect with our bodies and seeing, smelling. We learn how to really touch life, experience it directly, and, it, and how to experience the pleasure of that. So this quality of mindfulness, of directly connecting with our experience. And so we play, too, then, with what does it mean to connect directly with our experience and what does it mean to think about our experience? We spend a lot of life thinking about our experience, but what's it like to connect with it directly? And one way I thought that the difference... Um, might make sense to y'all, is when you're playing sports and you get into what's known the zone, right? The zone is when you're just like, you're just playing that sport. You're not even thinking about it, right? You're just there and you're doing it. You're connecting directly. How's that experience compared to when you're playing a sport and you're thinking about it? It's really different, right? Or like when you're playing music and you're like, you've played this instrument so many times that you just, you just, you do it. You're there, you're one with the music, as opposed to when you're thinking about it. So meditation is about learning how to um, experience the zone with living, you know, like how to just connect directly with our lives rather than live up here in our thoughts about our lives, which is where we live a lot. And so if we keep coming back and learning how to connect with our senses directly, we can experience the pleasure in the world much more directly. There's a problem with depending, however, on this kind of happiness for our sense of peace, our our sense of enduring happiness. And the problem is pretty obvious. Um, Things in this world change. They don't stay the same. So we can't depend on things to be pleasant all the time. Sometimes things are quite unpleasant. If we're looking for happiness through things being pleasant, what about when they're unpleasant? When I went on this uh, wilderness retreat, it was about 11 days, and um, the forecast right before I left was, as far as you could see in the future, rain. 
know, you guys, anybody who's been living in this area knows about this. And so uh, a couple of people were like, well, maybe you shouldn't go. And, um, and I was like, you know, I'm going anyway because this is the way life is. It's not always the way you want it, right? A good retreat is actually one where you learn to deal with life as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So um, it did rain the first five days. And that was my um, meditation, was how can I be happy even though it's raining? And the temperature didn't get out of the 40s two of the days I was there. So raining, temperature um, not out of the 40s, all by myself, way out on the lake, right? It's great. It was good. It was a good meditation practice. And then, oh, this was a real clincher, though. I brought um, a little bag of chocolate-covered almonds with me for my dessert, right? And um, so after I'd been there a couple days, I could not find the chocolate-covered almonds. I'm like, okay, there's only so many places it can be. You know, there's the tent, and there's a the food bag. <laughs> That's about it. And it uh, shouldn't be in the tent because of the bears. So um, um, this gave me another chance to practice. What happens when we have something pleasant and it goes away? How do we work with that? And then, interestingly, a couple days later, so I, I couldn't find them, I just gave up. A couple days later, I find in one of the food bags the empty chocolate-covered almond bag been um, chewed on, and every single almond, I think it was the red squirrels, had been hoisted, <laughs> and the bag was still there, and it was the only thing that disappeared out of the whole bag was my chocolate-covered almonds. <laughs> So the Buddha did recognize that um, pleasurable experiences can give us some sense of happiness, but yet they're not dependable. They can't um, be our primary, this can't be our primary source of happiness because things change. If something pleasant, you have something pleasant like chocolate-covered almonds, the squirrels might hoist them and they'll be gone. And, um, and unpleasant things happen like uh, temperature in the 40s and pouring rain. So we're kind of doomed to restlessness. If we look for happiness this way, we're doomed to restlessness because we're always going to be looking around the corner for our next happiness hit. There was this um, postcard that a friend of mine gave me a number of years ago, and it says, there's four little frames, and the first frame says, happiness just around the corner, work harder. And the second frame says, happiness just around the corner, earn more money. And the third frame says, happiness, just around the corner, buy more things. And the fourth frame says, happiness, just around the corner, keep going. That's a little bit what this kind of happiness search is like, if we're looking for um, happiness and pleasant experiences and avoiding unpleasantness. We're always looking. The endless search for happiness in this way is stressful. There's a story of a Zen teacher named Steve Allen, and somebody asked him, if you were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? And he said, to stop wishing. He got that, you know, the stress of always um, looking, looking, looking for something to make us happy. 
So what's a more reliable kind of happiness than this happiness of sense pleasures, as it's called? The Buddha said that the best kind of happiness in the world or the highest kind of happiness in the world is the happiness of peace of mind. And this is the kind of mind that can move gracefully through the world, this world of changes, can experience the full range of what life is, the joys, the sorrows, with, I like to use this expression, with a sense of grace, with a sense of ease, with being okay with experiencing the full range of life. It's, it's the kind of mind, this kind of happiness is the kind of mind that doesn't struggle with life as it is. Now, obviously, we still do our best in life to, um, you know, have goals and work for them and, um, you know, have relationships and have jobs and, and do all the things that, that do make a good life. But we learn to be happy with whatever the results of our efforts are. So like I said, that's like being happy on my camping trip, even though it was cold and pouring rain and I didn't have any chocolate-covered almonds. So this um, quality in Buddhist um, meditation is known as equanimity, the quality of peace of mind. It's a very free kind of happiness because it's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on life being any particular way. So when we talk in um, Buddhism about um, being free, this is what we're talking about, a mind that can be happy with life however it is. So how do we develop this kind of happiness? Sansanima um, Korean Zen master says, you make problem, you have problem. So what we do is we watch how we make a problem out of life. We watch our minds. We sit down and we meditate and we look how we make a problem out of life. We get curious about how we make a problem out of life. We investigate it. This is the real goal of meditation is this understanding of how we make a problem out of life. And we can, you know, we can have some fun with this investigation. Every morning I would wake up on my retreat and um, look out of the tent and see, oh my God, once again, it's totally cloudy, it's cold, and it's raining. And so what I started to do is each morning I would have a five-minute bitch session in my mind. (laughs) I would, um, and actually it got a little shorter. I think the first morning was like 10 minutes, and by the time the fifth day came around, it was, I had it down to one or two. But I would just let my mind bitch about it. (laughs) Oh, look, it's raining, it's cold, this is my retreat, how could this happen to me? (laughs) Oh, how can I get through another day of raining, pouring rain all day? And then then after I would have my little reactivity session, I'd say, okay, how can I be happy today? You know, given this is life right now. Maybe if you were kind of forced to come here and, you, and, you didn't, and you're not sure yet that you like it or that you want to be here, maybe you can start your first, every meditation period with like two minutes of, of um, letting your mind have a tantrum. 
And then the question might be, how can I be happy here? How can I be happy right now, this moment? That's what meditation is about. It's like, how can I be at peace right now, this moment? That's the investigation. And then it was really interesting because I saw that when I was reactive to how the weather was, I actually missed so much beauty. I mean, there was a way that the mist would like um, go over the lake that was just absolutely beautiful. And then um, there weren't any bugs. Once it got warm, the bugs came out. <laughs> and then when it was raining, there weren't any other people, which was, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm like an introvert. That was the best. There was no other people on the lake, you know? So it's like um, when we get really stuck in our minds about what we need to be happy, we miss so much. So we, um, we, we do this investigation then. Of, of our life in each moment. And what we're really interested in looking at is how we relate to it. <laughs> Here's a quote I found the other day. Um, somebody named Brad Warner, I think I actually mentioned him last night. He says, meditation isn't about blissing out or going into an alpha brainwave trance. It's about facing who and what you really are in every single damn moment. And you aren't just bliss. I'll tell you that right now. You're a mess. We all are. But here's the thing. That mess is itself enlightenment. We aren't just bliss, are we? We're also a mess. But all of us. And that, looking at that, is how we find enlightenment, is how we find happiness. So we explore whatever comes up for us, and we look at how we're relating to it, and we see if there's some way we can make peace. And, you know, it's not a fast process. I think most of you know that. It takes time. Like, for example, I, I think I've mentioned before in other retreats, I've worked, I worked many years um, with fear. Fear was like my messy teacher. Um, and I still experience fear, but not really the way I used to. Um, I used to uh, work a lot with a really, um, I call it the black hole, this really deep fear that I would um, fall into. That's what it felt like, falling into a hole. And um, over time, working with meditation, I learned to really investigate that place, you know? And it's really interesting to look at these places that catch us and like, what are they saying to us? And what are they saying that's true? And what are they saying that's false? How do we get stuck in fear? How does it become a problem? How can we experience freedom without having to get rid of the fear? Now, exploring that very deeply. Like, fear is really interesting because, like, was, when I was in the black hole, the fear would say, You're all alone, nobody cares about you. You could spin out in the universe and nobody would know. And then, you know, it's like, is that true? When, you're, when you fall in these places, you believe it, right? But we learn to, um, to, to, to really investigate and pay attention and kind of take it apart. Now, I have to say, we, we do this at a pace we can handle, 
you know, if something becomes really overwhelming, it's also useful to know to how, how to get out of it and how to take care of ourselves. So, um, you know, for me with fear, I had to take it slow, you know, going in a little bit and getting out of there. And then over years, sorry, I had to say it's years, I got so that I, you know, was pretty comfortable with fear. And then um, paradoxically, it doesn't show up as much anymore. So that's an example of um, looking at how we relate to life, right? Because fear is usually a problem. Fear is usually something we have to get rid of. How can we include fear and find freedom? And now I'm going to give you the really advanced instructions. Have some of you been waiting for the advanced instructions, those who've been coming back year after year? The same thing we did with fear, we do with happiness too. Because we can get stuck in happiness. We can believe uh, stories that happiness tells us that aren't true either. So when we're happy, one of the stories our mind might say is, you're never going to be unhappy again. You ever have that experience? You're like really happy and you really think you're never going to be unhappy again? That's not true, is it? (laughs) This is how we get stuck in, in happiness. And then if we get stuck in that story, then we suffer, right? When it changes. So we do the same kind of experiment with fear. We do it with happiness. So what we're really learning to do then is to uh, make friends with all of our life. Become comfortable with the full range of what it means to be human. And this is developing equanimity. And it really makes us strong. The Buddha said it was a dependable kind of happiness because it includes everything. The image often used to describe um, equanimity is the image of a mountain. You know, there's that stability, a mountain through rain and snow and sleet and hail. Boom. It's just there. It's okay. It can take it all. So sometimes equanimity is described as developing the mind of um, no preferences, of being okay. Again, this is another way of saying of being okay with whatever life handles us, hands us. And there's a story that I think is kind of illustrates this. It's another Zen story. It says um, there was a man named Bazan, and before he became a great Zen master, he spent many years pursuing enlightenment. But it always eluded him. Then one day, as he was walking in the marketplace, he overheard a conversation between a butcher and his customer. Give me the best piece of meat you have, said the customer. And the butcher replied, Every piece of meat I have is the best. There is no piece of meat here that is not the best. Upon hearing this, Bazan became enlightened. I like that. Every piece of here is the best. There's no piece of me here that isn't the best. So meditation isn't about getting rid of anything. It's actually about including everything. And again, we often don't come to meditation with this idea. This is something that we uh, learn over time. 
And it's investigating how can we include everything. So it's a kind of happiness lab. I wonder why we don't have them in school. I think this kind of happiness lab is more important than dissecting a frog. We need more of these kind of happiness labs to study how to be happy. That's what we're doing here. Forgive me for mentioning school. (laughs) And so we learn from um, our struggles. It's nice if we feel peaceful when we meditate, but it's even better if we learn how we make a problem out of life and how we can free ourselves. That's a wisdom we can take with us. Ultimately, we learn um, this happiness of equanimity by being comfortable with change, with understanding that everything changes and that is changing all the time and learning to flow with change, to be able to go with the changes in this world. The last thing I'd like to do is actually teach you a little chant, which I think you'll find on your cushion. I had a copy of and I can't find. So I'm going to tell you in English first. This is a well-known Buddhist chant. It's chanted in a lot of monasteries. And in English it goes, All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. All conditioned things are impermanent. Basically, all conditioned things means everything that you know. Everything that we know is a conditioned thing. So everything is impermanent. Everything arises and passes away. Everything changes. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. Why would that be? Why would it be understanding that everything changes would bring the greatest kind of happiness? Peace. When we understand that everything changes, we learn to flow with life. We learn to go with the flow of life. We learn not to resist life, but actually to embrace it just as it is. And this is the greatest kind of happiness. So I'll chant the um, Pali um, as best I can. And then we'll do a little call and response. It's a really, I love this chant because it's, um, it's really rather poignant in the, in the Pali. It has this kind of haunting, poignant quality to it, which kind of touches into the poignancy of living in this kind of world where everything changes, right? It's very um, bittersweet. There's this beauty in life, and then there's this, this quality of... Um, Bittersweetness, too, knowing that everything changes and nothing lasts. So I'll, I'll chant it once first. Anicca vata sankara upada yadamino upakituva niruchanto te sang vupasamasuko we try some call and response? 
Anicca Vata Sankara. Upada Yadamino. Upakitua Nirujanto. Tesang Upasama. Suko. We do it one time together. Anicca Vata Sankara Upadaya Damino Upakituwa Nirujanto Te Sang Upasama Sukho sit together for a couple minutes. What a beautiful and mysterious world we live in. We can chant one more time. You can join if you want, or if you just want to be quiet, that's okay. Anicca Vata Sankara Upadaya Damino Upakitua Niruchanto Tesang Upasama Sukho. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.